I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On today's episode, I have a conversation with Christina Reynolds of Emily's List. Isn't that nice? You've heard of Emily's List, right? It's a political organization dedicated to helping pro-choice Democratic women get elected to office. And whatever they're doing over at Emily's List is working. They've trained thousands of women, they've had over 1,200 election victories, and they've raised millions of dollars to help get progressive women elected. And many of those victories, the victories that we had during the midterms, you know, the midterms where we elected a historic number of women to the House, many of those women were endorsed or trained by Emily's List, like Abigail Spanberger or Lucy McBath and Cherise Davids. And if you're not familiar with the three Congresswomen I've just mentioned, you will be soon. They are powerhouses, and they're driven, and they're poised to do great things in Congress. So not only was the midterms a historic time for women, but the presidential primaries so far are also going to be history-making. All three top-tier presidential candidates seeking the Democratic nomination for president are women. And this has never happened before. And who better to talk to about this historic time for women but Emily's List, or rather Christina Reynolds, the Vice President of Communications for Emily's List. But despite this being an exciting time for women in politics, I still have quite a few reservations. Not about the women themselves, but about what they're up against. You know, will the media stop asking whether they're likable or not? Or will people stop evaluating them on their shoes or their voices or their pantsuits? And you know what? I'm excited, but I'm also a nervous wreck. Christina is here, thankfully, to talk me down from the ledge. You know, she's optimistic about 2020, and she's also optimistic about upcoming Senate and congressional races. Here's Christina explaining why at Emily's List they prefer to think of the midterm victories and the energy on the left as a sea change versus just a wave. Right, right. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, the interesting thing, you use the word, the pink wave, the blue wave, whatever, whatever it is. One thing that we like to say here is we think this is not a wave. This is a sea change. Um, We are looking at a fundamental change in politics where the women running are where we look at candidates as not just a man in a suit. We look at candidates as as women. We look at candidates as, as any gender and women are part of that and women do great work. And we know that in office, women reach across the aisle more, they tend to get more done, they pass more bills, um, uh, and they're often um, covering issues that truly matter to families. And that's something that we could not be more excited about, about seeing these women take that experience into the presidential race. And, you know, I I saw a, a random story pop up on Twitter today that was about something not remotely gender related. Um, it was st- super delegates, I think. And, um, and The picture that went along with the story had three women's faces in it just to sort of hear, you know, here are some of the candidates. And the idea that that was three women in there was pretty exciting. It's something we've never seen before. This great diversity of candidates, these great candidates. I mean, right now, I would argue the top tier is all women, um, which is just it's incredibly exciting to see. um, And we think this is a change that this isn't one year. This isn't, you know, a couple of cycles. This is here to stay. You know, we've analyzed 2016 ad nauseum. We've analyzed what happened (laughs) with Hillary from every angle. But I still feel like we have all the information, we have the knowledge, but I still feel kind of powerless to to stop it or to change anything Mm -hmm. because I, I, I see the same patterns happening right now. So how do we not screw this up again? 
Good question. And I think that's, uh, I suspect that's in the back of every Democratic voter's head um, and probably many non-Democratic voters. I think that um, number one is, you know, being more aware of what's happening when it's happening. So um, my, my friend Jen Palmieri wrote a book called Dear Madam President. And in it, she talks about when we when we looked at Hillary, a lot of people said, well, there's something about her I just don't like. And, um, and that became the shorthand for this, uh, you know, it, it, but that's just Hillary. I just don't like Hillary. And when we see that happen with other women, we can call it out. We can remind people of, hold on, is that just because you're not used to the idea of a woman as president? Is that, you know, when you when you talk about, I don't like this how this woman gives a speech or I don't like her voice or she's kind of shrill, is that because of her or is that because you're not used to hearing a woman give a speech and and how do we change that how do we call it out when it happens and to be honest one of the other side effects of there being so many women running is that it's easier to see it's easier to call out and I think you know sunlight is a great disinfectant here right the more sunlight we can sh- we can show on these things um, we can shine on these things the 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 better we are at saying okay Okay, so maybe that preconceived notion, maybe when we talk about likability, that's not a great metric for a president because everyone likes different things. Maybe that's just a weapon that we use against candidates that aren't what we're used to. So maybe we should stop looking at that and say, okay, I'm going to take a step back. Whose policies do I like the best? Who do I think will run the country the best? I think that we all have these inherent things that, you know, based on how we were raised and and what we were taught and and frankly, to some degree, what we've seen in history that we have to break out of. And I think the more women that run, the better it will be to really allow ourselves to break out of that thinking and see these women as as just great candidates. Yeah, but that's one part of the picture, right? So there's this, yes, there's, there's lots yeah, more. There's, yes. <laughs> there's, there's sexism and there's misogyny that's yep. just kind of in the air, right? Yes. That's in the air. Yes. And that makes people think like, oh, I don't like her. Maybe it has something to do with her voice. But then there's also the media Yes. who has a big part in shaping the narrative, yes. right? And sometimes people yes. don't understand yeah. like why I think these things. And to yep. be frank, nothing has changed. There's been study after study, article after article about the role that the media played in yep. 2016. Yep. But nothing has really changed on that front, right? Nothing has changed on that front. And I'm not really <laughs> sure what to do as a constituent to break through that framing, yep. right, ab- well, about these women. Here's um, here's what I would argue. I think um, I, I will agree with you that certainly not enough has changed. I will, you know, we have not solved anything. But I think there's been some progress. And I'll give you an example. When Elizabeth Warren first got into the race, Politico ran a headline that, that basically said, is Elizabeth Warren likable? Does she have a likability problem? Is she likable enough to win? And I would say the world of Twitter came down on their heads. You know, there was quite a bit of hold on, you don't say that about the male candidates, what's going on? Um, and that generated coverage that pushed the other way, right? How are we actually looking at this? What about Warren, you know, Warren's policies? What about this? We saw the same, th- I mean, and, and I'm hoping that they've learned their lesson on this front. You know, yesterday, some conser- or maybe the day before, some conservatives came out with this theory that Kamala Harris, despite being born in this country, um, was not... <laughs> 
was not eligible to run for president. We've heard this one before, right? Um, sadly, Barack Obama and Kamala Harris share something you know in common that should trouble us about this theory, right? Um, wonder why it's the African American candidates, but um, but I think one thing that we've seen is that. I think at least some of the media was a little more cautious in looking at that story rather than just running with it of, and and we all remember who the first, bir- you know, one of the first birthers was, Donald Trump. But, you know, oh, Trump questions Obama's citizenship. A lot of the media skipped the story of the birthers going after Kamala, which I think is some progress, right? I don't think we're there, but I think we have won. We have citizens and voters who are engaged in ways that they've never been before, and they're helping police the media. And I think it is actually having an impact. Not You're, you're right, like we're not far enough along, but I do think we're making progress. And I, and I hope and think that that will continue the more these women are running and are, and are running great races so far. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, the first thing I was going to say, my rebuttal was going to be that, you know, <laughs> most voters aren't, you know, on social media to sure. the extent that we are and they aren't steeped in that. Sure. But the fact that journalists do listen to the big voices on yes. social media yeah. and that shapes the fo- so that That's that is right. helpful. So I agree with That's you, right? right? And 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 what that means is so if you if that story gets beaten down enough on social media, then maybe you don't see it on the morning shows, which which a lot of voters do watch. Then maybe you don't see it on the nightly news, which you know. And so so you've done something good with social media, which you're right. We you know, especially those of us who 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 like to, you know, get a little back and forth on Twitter, we we forget that most of the world is not there. Um, you know, I think that does have longer term consequences um, in terms of what voters do, because a lot of voters do still watch their broadcast news. They do still watch their local TV. And so it's important to make sure the story is kind of killed there, too. Wow. You know, I've been talking to you for 10 minutes and I feel better already. Good. Yay. It's <laughs> Listen, we just came off a great year and we're looking at a great cycle. So, so good. I hope so. I, I, I get to work in a great place. So it's we got a lot of good to share here. Well, you know what? I mean, th- this whole conversation, this whole interview is about all of my worries. I, I, <laughs> Let me hear. I'm, I'm, gonna, I, I'm here I'm for you, lay Jeff. Them I'm here. Out yeah. One by one. OK, <laughs> so my next one is the the standards that we hold women candidates and men candidates to. And you and yep. I talked about this again. Yes, offline. Yes. You know, about one of the things that keeps coming up is that Biden keeps, you know, like sticking his big toe in there and, you know, on his big toe, his Biden toe. I don't know. I, maybe his <laughs> sure, toes sure. are small. I don't know. Um, but, you know, for instance, when you compare his past, I think on Martin Luther King Day, he was at a breakfast and he apologized for his role in the in the 90s crime bill. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that is rarely he's rarely held to account for mm-hmm. when he talks about his bid for the presidency. But women, on the other hand, aren't held to that same standard. Mm-hmm. Right. If they've done anything in their past and they've shifted and they've shifted <laughs> their position Yes. They're considered yes. cunning or they're pandering yeah. or yeah. they're flip floppers, but men are growing and yes. evolving. And evolving. Yes, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, look, that's I I I, I I can't solve this problem um, for you in that that is definitely still happening. I think we see that on the where do we give people the benefit of the doubt. I think we also see that on how do we look at people's experience. Women's experience is often dismissed, whereas men are, oh, they'll grow into the role. And so that's okay if they don't have as much experience. And that's not great, but um, it's really bad, in fact. But I think that this is another place where the more women who run and and for, for people who 
didn't, you know, you only saw your local candidates in the last election or you, you weren't, you were, you were busy and you weren't paying as much attention. One thing that we learned in the last election, I mean, there were a couple things, but one of them was to be authentically who you are. And, you know, for years we have made women candidates slip in this little box. You know, you can't get too angry. You can only really push back on behalf of other people, not on behalf of yourself. You, you know, you're not allowed to change, right? You can't evolve because you're just a flip-flopper. You have to be nice, but you have to be strong, but you have to, you know, all those boxes that you need to check. And what happened this past cycle was all these phenomenal women that came out, many of them running for the first time, said, oh yeah, that doesn't work for me. Like, what if I just try being me? Because of the many, many things we can say about Donald Trump, he was him during the election, right? He was the guy who had the solid gold toilets and the, you know, and the big plane and he was unashamed of that. And if that's the one good thing that we can take from that election, it's that these women said, I'm not going to let you put me in this little box. I'm going to be who I am. And so when people came at Stacey Abrams and said, you have a lot of debt, that's a deal killer. You know, like you can't be governor. And she said, yeah, I went to some expensive colleges and I have student loans. That makes me understand the the voters, you know, and, and, and I help my family out. And that's something that so many voters can understand. And they were unapologetic about it. And they're just going to be out there. I think, you know, you, you've even seen it when Kirsten Gillibrand talks about her evolution on some issues. And what's happening is she's not backing away from it. She's just saying, this is where I was. This is who, you know, this is how I got here. I'm going to say it and then I'm going to move on and talk about what I'm going to do. You know, you saw Elizabeth Warren when she got hit with the, oh, you know, I don't know about her drinking a beer after her first day. My attitude was, you had a good launch. Have your beer, sister, right? Um, good for you. Um, but people, oh, I don't know if that's authentic. And so her attitude was like, I'm going to make a joke of it the next day. These women are being very unapologetic. I mean, you're seeing Kamala, who's been hit some with questions of her record as a prosecutor, which I think people just like to say without necessarily diving into some of the details. Uh taking that on and, and taking some of her, her, you know, owning that in her election or, you know, her, her messages for the people, which was literally something she said when she was a prosecutor, right? And so I think one of the things that we're seeing is women say those old rules didn't service my ability to push back on the way we hold women to different standards. So I'm at least going to, you know, let myself be me you know, I may as well, right? They're going to hold me to different standards. I'm going to push back and let people see me and see if that helps. And I think, I don't think that solves a problem this cycle, but I think it helps down the road. And I think every woman being authentically herself makes it easier for other women to do it. You know, it's, we, it's not just Alexandria talking policy while she makes mac and cheese, right? There are a lot of women um, doing different things that before we might've said, you can't do that as a member of Congress. And good for them. You know, they're they're standing more as a group. And I think that's that's also a part of it is we're going to we're going to stand up for each other. So if you you know, if you do this ridiculous stuff, if you hold us to different standards, we're going to call it out. And that's, you know, it at least is us fighting back rather than just trying to live within those narrow measures that we tried to fit women in. Yeah. Yeah. And so just for the record, I just want to say it's not that I I'm criticizing Biden for oh, totally. shifting. Yeah. I mean, sure. good on him for sure. realizing that he made mistakes in the that's past. Right. I think that's, that's right. bad for anyone to box anyone into something that they did. You know, I yeah. think it, it's important to look 
look at the the overall arc of a person's of a person's career, right? Totally. So, well, and you know, if someone hadn't changed their mind on anything in you know how long has Biden been in office, um, I would kind of <laughs> wonder about uh, whether they were open to new ideas. So, yeah, it's but but you're you're the way you framed it was exactly right. We see that a lot, and this is why we also look at how the media talks about things. You know, they use the word cunning with women. They use the word evolving with men, right? Like that's, that's not okay. So, um, so yeah, you called it right. I think it's less about, is it okay to do and more about who's it okay for? Yeah. And, and about experience, right? So yes, one of the yes. claims that's always made is that, I mean, you heard that famous, that infamous remark about Hillary during the debate about, you know, her being overprepared, right? So, yes. and, but, and that's kind of the same thing <laughs> with, you know, women and, you know, being criticized for their experience. Mm-hmm. Like when they are very experienced, they often have the wrong experience, right? Yes, like yes, with Kamala yes. Harris, right? Like she's, you know, her experience as a prosecutor can be seen as a good, but it's the wrong right. experience for some people. And I just feel like- right. For lots of people, you know, not only are their standards lower for men, but for women, they're never steady. They're they're always shifting and it doesn't really matter. (laughs) So anyway. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And it's and, and again, I do think it's something the more we call it out and people are actually looking for it the more we can change that, I think, slowly, but still it's progress. Yeah. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about because it's bothered me for so long is, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand. And the thing mm-hmm. that she is consistently criticized about is, the, you know, the issue with Al Franken, right? With Franken. Mm-hmm. What, sure. what often is not mentioned is that there were 32 Democratic senators who came yep. out? Who came out against <laughs> against Franken? Thirteen of them were women. Nineteen yep. were men. Yeah. And this includes many of people's favorites, Chuck Schumer. I don't know if he's anyone's favorite, but Chuck Schumer, <laughs> <laughs> Sherrod Brown, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders. They mm-hmm. were in that group of 32 senators who mm-hmm. called for Franken to step down. And it just speaks to this pattern of that I see often in politics of women being blamed for men's mistakes or men's missteps. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's pretty remarkable. I remember a graphic when that happened where I walked by and there was a graphic up on screen of all the women, democratic women in the Senate with, you know, they'd put an X by their name if they'd called for whatever, you know, whatever the thing was, but they were only counting the women. And I thought, huh, isn't that interesting that this is only an issue for women to answer, right? Like it's, um, we've seen it, you know, and I think you saw it a lot with the, with the various Me Too things where, you know, there was criticism of Harvey Weinstein's wife, right? There were, you know, it was asking women to answer. I mean, you know, this goes all the way back to Hillary, right? It's asking women to answer for the actions of men. We've got a long, long history that in this country, what if we ask people to answer for their own actions, right? <laughs> um, and and what if we stopped doing that? I think we would all be in a better place to take a look at the idea that, yes, this was a conversation that needed to happen, that this was a decision that, that Al Franken made to resign. And But let's talk about the important issues around it, right? Like, let's talk about things that, that Gillibrand and others raise, things like how we deal with sexual harassment 
harassment from Congress, how we deal with it in workplaces, particularly in places where women do not hold a lot of power um, and their employers hold a lot. And, you know, there are some really important issues here. And instead, we're fighting a fight over something that, as you point out, over one woman out of the 32 who said the same thing. Yeah. Another point that you made earlier that I really liked is that, you know, the women in Congress and women who won their Senate seats, they are doing so on their own terms and they're being themselves or bringing kind of some unique personality mm-hmm. and unique energy. Yep. Right. But the yes. other thing that I see is that, you know, this kind of trend of like pitting women against each other, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. it isn't direct, you know, you see it directly with, you know, these false arguments between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Pelosi, you know, these media right. narratives there. But then you also see it in these comparisons. If you don't use tough language like Rashida Tlaib, then you know right. you're not tough enough, right? That's and, right. But you know we need to allow women to lead and to be strong in their own ways, you know. And that's another absolutely. Thing. I I couldn't agree more, and I think it's a really important point. Um, I, you know, it's great that we have an Alexandria and a Rashida in Congress, and 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 that we have a Nancy Pelosi as Speaker, and it's also great that we have women like. Kendra Horn, who came from Oklahoma um, and has worked to help elect women and then became one her, you know, one of the women elected herself, that we have women speaking from different places, from different points of view. Um, you know, at Emily's List, we were, we were very proud to have been behind. For example, you look at Kansas, just Kansas, right? Not a, not a blue state by any stretch of the imagination. And last cycle, we elected Sharice Davids, who's a, an amazing Native American lesbian former MMA fighter. She was also a White House fellow. She's a lawyer. She's amazing. And Laura Kelly, who is a state senator, is older than Charisse, is, you know, has been in politics and um, and is very different from Charisse. Same same state elected them both. And they're going to do they're going to both do great things. And they work they work really well together, which is lovely. But I think we we don't need just any one type. Right. Part of why we were so proud to support this incredibly diverse new class in Congress and the diverse women around the country is that this is part of the problem is that for too often, we've had one type of voice in Congress. It's been white and male. And it's, you know, it's often it's often been lawyers. It's often been people who are wealthy. I think it's great that we have a conversation about the people who, you know, Stacey Abrams talking about her student loans, that we have different voices. We have Katie Porter, who's a single mom. We haven't had many of those in Congress, um, certainly not with school age kids, that we have people who've actually dealt with healthcare issues on their own and people who are going to solve issues in different ways, right? Alexandria is, you know, is an activist, which is awesome. Lauren Underwood from Illinois is someone who was born with a chronic condition and went into nursing and then healthcare policy. Lauren's a wonk. Like, we need both of those women in Congress. And so I think it's great that we have those different people. We certainly need more of those different voices. But yeah, just like part of the, the, the joy in, in electing women is that we break the mold. We shouldn't put all those women in one mold either. Yeah. So you, t- you mentioned something earlier that I've always wanted to talk about is the fact that, you know, this is going to happen during the cycle. People are going to blame, I guess you can call this reverse sexism. People are going <laughs> to criticize women for wanting to vote for a woman just because she's a woman. You know, the whole like right. voting with your vagina thing. But we could talk about that forever. But that's not really the (laughs) debate, right? Like the the point is, is that 
women are effective leaders, right? They're effectively, they pass pass more bills, they pass more laws, they send more money home to their districts, right? Like that enough. Like if we just talk about the substance of what women do when they legislate, like that alone, like that's why I'm voting for a woman. Yeah. And and I'm going to tell you that um, having having gotten to watch and meet many of these women and work with them, we also, like as an organization that works to elect pro-choice Democratic women, we weren't with these women just because they were women. We were with them because they were women who were awesome candidates. And so, you know, I think there is something to the idea that we're not saying just put any women in there. It's fine. We're saying women have been doing the work for a long time. And what's great is that recently they've started raising their hand and running for office. And so, you know, just like you look at the presidential, you've got a bunch of great women to choose from if you decide, okay, I think I'd like to have a woman. But you know, I've got some great candidates. So yeah, I think one, what we're seeing is these women have spent their careers, however long those careers are, but have spent their lives rolling up their sleeves and doing awesome things in their community. And so we're lucky to have them. But it's not just, we're not just happy because they're women. We're happy because of their, the experience that they bring, because of the voice that they bring, and because we know they're going to get a lot done because we watch them do it on the campaign trail. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is I think that people are incredulous because it doesn't make sense that women would pass more bills. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would right. women pass more bills? But there's actually... Because we work hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a study about that. And I wish I could yeah. cite the study, and I can't remember what university did this, but it's linked to the idea that women, these women who run for office, first of all, they're, they're ambitious generally, right? Mm-hmm. And the yep. fact that they've probably dealt with sexism and misogyny on their climb right. up professionally, yeah. that makes them kind of, you know, anxious about, you know, proving themselves. And so mm-hmm. they so they get better. They get better at legislating. They get better at what they do. So once they are in office, they are more prolific. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you look at these women and we have we have a number of women who are veterans. Those are those are definitely tough fields. We have we've got a couple CIA agents. Um, we've got people who were at different departments. We have the woman who, for example, ran the auto task force for Barack Obama in the early days of the administration when the the auto industry in the United States that needed saving. She's gone through some stuff, right? Um, She's worked hard. Um, We have women who have done amazing things. So yeah, they're going to get in Congress and be like, okay, one, I know how to build coalitions. I know how to work with other people and I, and I'm here to get things done. It's the other interesting thing is that when you ask people why they're running for office, men have a, a, a plurality of reasons. Some of it, oh, it's the next step. Oh, I want to, I want to go on to higher office. Women, what it comes down to for women is I want to solve a problem. And that that is a motivation that I think allows you to just get more done. You know, you're just going to cut through it and, and and get something done there. And that's it's it's really powerful to watch. And we're we're so excited. I mean, you know, the there have only been two women now, Alexandria and Abby Finkenauer, who've been elected in their 20s in the history of the United States. Um, over 100 men men in their 20s have been elected. Surprise, surprise, surprise. But Abby Finkenauer has already passed her first bill. I mean, how awesome is that, right? She's been in Congress less than a month. So we know these women are going to get in. They're going to get things done. And they're looking at big and small things. I mean, one one great thing, especially because we have so many younger moms in Congress this time, one of the things they did was they went in and they said, you know, we have, we have kids in school. So could we plan a schedule where we can actually plan around it and set a set schedule? And it's something that Congress hasn't been great about doing. And so they did it. You know, they're all shining 
shining a light on some, you know, ways Congress works for people. They just get things done. And, and we're, we're so excited to watch and see what else they do. But think about what that could mean for, you know, reverberating those policies out to the you know, population at large, right? You know, like um, yep. voting schedules that work for, you know, working moms yeah. or people or, right. you know, other, other policies, right? And, you know, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And so another thing that I think that this relates to is that electing women of color, right? I mean, uh-huh. so yes. Lucy McBath is a really good example of that, of not, not necessarily a woman of color, but that certainly factors in, but the fact that her family was touched by gun violence, right? Absolutely. And she's going to work on those policies. And I always remember Ayanna Presley. she said something early on in her tenure. She said, you know, the people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. It's, I mean, Ayana's just poetic. She's so great. Um, that is that is absolutely true. And, you know, Lucy, Debbie Mukersell Powell is another candidate who she lost her father to gun violence. We've got candidates like that who they know these issues. We have candidates who have lost family members. You know, Alyssa Slotkin is one of those. Um, Alyssa's mom did not have health care. And so she waited and waited and finally went to an emergency room and discovered she had cancer that might have been treatable or had she caught it earlier. That's part of the reason Alyssa ran was because she watched the Republicans try and undermine Obamacare. And she said, not not on my watch. Like, I, this is, you know, I know what this can do to a family. We have women like, you know, you mentioned gun violence, and that's certainly a big issue. Healthcare was a huge issue for a lot of our women. Cindy Axney in Iowa couldn't afford the maternity rider when she got healthcare, um, you know, at one of her jobs. And so they didn't get it. And then she had her second child. She and her husband literally sold some of their belongings on eBay to pay for their hospital bill. So Cindy's someone for whom like, hold on, you know, the the issues of maternity care matter to me. This is not the days of when we were debating Obamacare and we had a Republican senator say, well, why I'm not going to have a baby. Why do I need to worry about, you know, about maternity care? So I think the the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power is a it's such a powerful statement. And it's something that we're going to see a lot of because these women have have lived lives that have tragedies in them and have, you know, life lessons in them that they are taking to Congress with them. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about Emily's list because, Mm -hmm. you know, this in this past cycle or during this past cycle, you guys trained thousands of women to run for office. You endorsed many, many women, right? Pro-choice, progressive, democratic women. And a lot of the stars that we've just been talking about, Macbeth, you know, Underwood, they Mm -hmm. went through your training, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Did you did you teach them to do something different (laughs) or like, what's what's the secret sauce? Well, well, um, I think um, part of it is just raising your hand. You know, as our president, Stephanie Shriok, likes to say, I say to every woman, you don't have to tell me you're going to run right now. You just have to tell me that you'll think about it or help a woman who is running. We always say the number one thing that you need to run for office is a desire to help your community. And if you've got that, you can learn everything else. And these women proved that. You know, these were not, I mean, we had some candidates that are fortunate enough to, to be well off. Most of them aren't, you know. Um, many of them are still paying off student loans. They've been working in things like nonprofits or government work. They don't have a lot of money. They didn't have huge networks. They didn't have big fundraising networks. They'd never done this before. So we taught them how to build a fundraising network. We tried to help connect them with people, but they did the work, you know? And so it was sort of, if you're willing to work hard and you you have a, a reason for running, 
that is your community. We can we can teach you the basics and then you can go. And I think one of the things that Stephanie likes to point out is the training's important. You got to know what you're doing a little, you know, you got to you got to know the basics. But also women as I think we all know, women often wait until, okay, have I learned everything that I need to know? Do I check every box on the list? You know, do I do I meet every criteria? And the reality is the criteria for running for office is a certain age, you know, and that's about it. And so our take is we'll teach you the basics, we'll help you along the way, and then go run. Because if you want to help your community, you're ready to go. So it was it was great to teach those women. You know, you mentioned two of them, Lucy and, and Lauren, a, a couple others. Uh, Lauren actually may not have gone through a training, but I do know who did. Um, Lucy did. And Gina Ortiz-Jones, who ran and came incredibly close in Texas. And Chrissy Houlihan, who's, Chrissy's a great story. She was a, an Air Force vet and a business leader in Pennsylvania day after Hillary lost thought, I I don't know what I'm going to do. She has a a grown daughter who is gay. She was worried about what was going to happen with her, you know, her daughter's rights. She was just worried about her community. She did one of our trainings, but she also replied to like a $3 fundraising email, just hit reply and sent her resume and said, hello, I want to do something. And I think maybe that's running for office. Here's my resume. What do you think? And someone got back to her and said, hey, you're actually in a great district. Let's talk. And Chrissy's now a member of Congress and and wow. one of four women in Pennsylvania, which used to be the largest state without a woman in their delegation. So we are really excited about the idea of these women standing up and we are excited. We, we blew out our training program. You know, we expanded it greatly. We started doing things like webinars and we have an online training center um, that you can find on our website. But we also had to, you know, remind some women of, okay, we've got the basics for you. We're going to help you. You know, we invited them into like a Facebook group for women who are running where people have found their own accountability partners. They text each other. They, It's the happiest place on the internet. I got to tell you, it's people like just providing support and like, go get them, girl, you know. And, and that's been an exciting part about being here is watching people who've never run before, but done all these amazing things for their community decide to take that to the next level. Wow. That's amazing. I would run for office just to get into that group. Just there you go. There you go. <laughs> just to inject uh, a little happiness yeah. into my day. Yeah, it's, it's every now and again, they'll pull some comments from it and send it around to the staff. And we we all just, you know, we get a little misty eyed. We enjoy it. So it's great. So if anyone's listening and, you know, they're thinking about running, like in this case, it's just as simple as replying to an email sometimes, I guess. Sometimes. Yes. And we also, you can go to emilyslist.org and it's backslash run to win or just go to our main page or our website and you'll find it. But yeah, there are lots of ways to to get involved and to and to find out about trainings and things like that. So, you know, 2020 is coming, obviously. That's why we're yes. talking. <laughs> but, <laughs> Very you know, quickly. But we have a chance possibly to win a majority in the Senate and to get more seats in the House, yep. I believe. Yep. Right. Yeah. But I feel something. I don't know if you feel this. I feel like. Our party, the Democratic Party, has a tendency to do a couple of things. You know, we had a great we had a great win during the midterms, but I feel like a lot of the momentum it started to wane. Like I think we get complacent, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. you know, I think that we lose a bit of momentum, right? And we get a bit comfortable. How do we not do that? Because we don't need to do that right now. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, honestly, I think that Donald Trump is still in the White House, and so I think a lot of people will not get complacent because of that. But I'll tell you, this was something that I think a lot of us in politics worried about 
when after the after the women's march in 2017 which was amazing right you saw all those women out there on on streets around the country around the world and i thought this is awesome but will you stick with it you know will you still be here in 2 years and what we learned was yes they would and along the way they would make phone calls they would start local groups and so in some cases national groups they would give money in, in you know women donors increased significantly and that's not when I say women donors, I don't mean the big dollar donors, although those are great too. We love them. I mean the five dollars here and there, which totally makes a difference and is really, you know, when you think about it, how we would love for politics to be run by citizens being able to to participate and not just the very wealthy. So so we had, you know, all those things, we kept waiting for the drop-off, and the drop-off never came. And people were still engaged. And I'll tell you, I one of the greatest things that I think we have, and as a Democrat, I'm really excited about, is this Democratic primary. I think it's going to be a phenomenal opportunity to see some of the best that our party has to offer, to see a great debate. I mean, I listen, I'm, I've been a Democrat a long time. I believe that my party's nomination and the, and the nomination to go up against this guy and beat him is a really important thing. It's a thing that should be worth a fight. And so I look forward to that fight. I hope it doesn't get nasty, but a debate about the issues, a debate about what's best for this country, I think is just going to keep voters engaged because there's a lot to like about what's out there in the Democratic primary these days. So this is the primary year and it's going to be, I know you're optimistic <laughs> and you're fueling yes. me, but you know what? I'm, I'm scared. I'm tired already. What do you got? I'm tired already, right? And because, you know, this primary is going to be like, when do we usually typically name the nominees? It usually like probably spring of next year, maybe? I, it may go all the way. It may go further. It may go to June, although a lot of states are moving their primaries up. But, you know, it may go to June, which by the way, it did last cycle. It did in 2008 as well. And, you know, we, we came back together. So it could go for a while. And yeah, there will be moments moments that it'll be tough. But I I think that it's going to be a great thing. It's also going to be a great thing to every now and again, drive Donald Trump off the news and have it be about us. I am optimistic. I will say it's worth noting, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening in this country right now. We have 800,000 people plus countless contractors and people who live off those people, you know, are just facing their second paycheck where they've been working for nothing. We have, you know, we still have children at the border in cages. We still have gun violence happening around the country. We have states jeopardizing our, you know, reproductive rights and all sorts of rights all around the country. And we've got a lot of work to do, but that that is actually looking at this field and look that's that's what makes me optimistic is I think we have a great group of people to debate that and to figure out what's next and to really um, you know bring people to you know engagement and to activism around those issues as, as they have been in, in a phenomenal way. But what should I be doing this year during the primary year sure. other than like arguing online? How should, how should <laughs> well, I be? That's helping? a good way to get out some stress. But yeah, no. Um, how can so so? I would say there are. Um, I, I would say a number of things. One, in, in the midst of the presidential primary, there are, as you mentioned, also going to be 
Senate races, House races, state legislative races, which are incredibly important, governor's races. So I would say get involved somewhere. If you're like me and you're still figuring out who your candidate's going to be in the in the presidential primary, I bet you've got a local candidate that you could help out with. Um, you know, get involved with groups. There are groups on, you know, Democratic and, and, and just activist groups on any sort of issue. So if you've got an issue that, that is particularly close to your heart or you are really concerned about, find a group and find a way to get involved. There are a ton of ways to get involved, to do things online. You know, you can use social media for good, right? Helping share information, not just as a place to vent, although that's healthy too. Um, that We allow that. Um, but I think that there are so many different groups and candidates and really great ways to engage. And so I would say just engage. Find your happy place. I'll, I'll tell you what it is for me. I know um, my mom watches an awful lot of cable news and she gets very frustrated at what Trump is doing to this country. And I, I realized one day the reason that I am not as frustrated is because I get to pour my energy every day into these amazing women. And the idea of doing something positive in the face of all the negative that I just mentioned and everything else happening can really get you through and also is incredibly valuable to the groups, the candidates, to anyone that you're helping out. So I would say get involved. Everybody's got a member of Congress. If yours is a Republican, find your state legislator or find someone in a nearby district and see if you can help out in their office, in their campaign office, or, you know, or get online and, and do some stuff because it's good for the soul and it's good for the country. So that's that's my best advice. <laughs> well, Christina Reynolds, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the free therapy. <laughs> uh, so this was the therapy that I never got after the 2016 election. Good. And, you know, yeah. Lord knows I needed it. <laughs> there um, you go. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. So great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Emily's List, visit emilyslist.org. You can help support their efforts to get more women elected or perhaps find information on running for office yourself. And if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please support us. And supporting The Electorate is fast and it's free. Simply subscribe to The Electorate on iTunes or wherever you're listening right now. And if you've already subscribed, share this episode with a friend and ask them to subscribe. So the more subscribers I have, the more we can grow. It helps other listeners find The Electorate. It's an algorithm thing. And if you've already subscribed, please leave a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening and keep up the good fight.